I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to America Abroad. Thanks to a breakthrough in the technology known as fracking, the hydraulic fracturing of rock, the United States is enjoying a boom in cheap natural gas. As of now, it's about a third of the total United States gas supply. It is shocking how fast this took place. Supporters argue that the technology not only brings new jobs, but also provides cleaner energy than coal. Natural gas will do everything we want it to do. It's 25% cleaner than oil. It's ours. We have an abundance of it, and it does not require refinery. Some experts say cheaper natural gas means there's less incentive to develop clean, renewable energy and invest in things like wind turbines, solar panels, and hydroelectric plants. Fewer incentives to develop clean energy technology here means we may lose our edge abroad. America is no longer the clean energy superpower, according to a new study by the Pew Charitable Trusts. As I look out over the global sector, I can't imagine that the United States would want to give up on clean energy. And there's a real risk here that we lose our leadership position, which we've built through our innovative capabilities. But we lose our leadership position because we're not the best market. So what role should the government play in developing renewable energy? Should the market take the lead? Over the next hour, we'll discuss that, and we'll go to China and India to see how they're developing clean energy. First, we spoke with Henry Jacoby. He's an emeritus professor of applied economics at MIT's Sloan School of Management and co-author of an MIT report called The Influence of Shale Gas on U.S. Energy and Environmental Policy. It seems like we are in the midst of a natural gas boom. When did that start, and why is it happening now? It started, I don't know, six, seven years ago, and it's happening because of the confluence of a set of technical developments that allowed the uh, cracking up of uh, gas that was in shale resources that are located all around the country. And that spread around very, very rapidly and has led to a revolution in natural gas in the United States. You're talking about the advent of hydraulic fracturing or fracking. That's correct. So it's more it's not just the fracking, it's also the drilling technology that's changed this. I see. And what has been the effect of this boom? Well, if you go back uh, six or seven years, there was essentially no gas out of the shale into the United States uh, economy. And as of now, it's about a third of the total United States gas supply, which is just a dramatic change. If you go back six or seven years, people were building lots of facilities to import gas into the United States because everybody expected the price of natural gas to rise over time and be high enough to pay for importing gas. And now all those facilities are sitting empty. So it's been a huge change. That's amazing in such a short period of time. Have you ever seen anything like that before? I have been around the business for a while, and, and it is shocking how fast this took place. That is, just the sheer scale of the change is, is unprecedented. So that's dropped the price of natural gas. It has. I mean, of course, natural gas prices have been volatile and up and down and up and down. But in terms of what people expected the price to be, it has definitely dropped the price of natural gas. Natural gas has been touted as a clean energy alternative to traditional petroleum products. What do you think? Do you think it is clean energy? Do you think that it needs to be looked at more carefully in terms of its environmental impact? Well, gas doesn't really substitute for oil so much. Gas substitutes for coal. Gas is a much cleaner technology than coal, used mainly in electric power, both in terms of what you'd think of as normal pollutants in urban areas and also in terms of 
greenhouse gas emissions. So yes, it is cleaner. It's cleaner for the environment. Yes, and when you burn it, it's cleaner than the environment. All these technologies have their environmental costs in the production. And so there are issues in the production of this gas, just like there are in the production of all other energy sources we use. Right. And there's been a lot of controversy in terms of its effects on uh, groundwater and streams and rivers. Yes. So we have this boom in natural gas. And what is that doing to other forms of energy, renewable energy? Is it tamping down interest in creating other forms of energy because there is so much natural gas? Yes, I think it, it does have the effect of lowering the expectations of the growth of opportunities in renewables. Now, a lot of the renewables that are being done now, solar and wind and such, are being driven mainly by subsidies and by various types of regulations and mandates and the like. But the potential for investment in these in these technologies, if you go back some years, was stimulated a lot by the expectation that natural gas prices were going to be rising over time. And now it looks like they won't be for quite some time. And then that makes it less likely that these technologies are going to become competitive without subsidies and regulations in the major use for them, which is in electric power generation. Right, because it's just more expensive to use the other form of energy than natural gas? That's right. They are more expensive than natural gas at the prices we have now, yes. And what are you talking about? Solar, wind? I'm talking about solar and wind. So is this the end of coal? No, it's not the end of coal so long as we have no penalty on greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. We'll continue to use coal until we have some real concern about CO2. It also is the case that even though the United States' use of coal has gone down over time because the cost difference is so great now with these lower gas prices, these gas prices aren't going to stay at this level for long periods of years. And as the gas price gradually crawls back up to a more competitive level without all this excess overhanging the market, then some of that coal will come back in the U.S. system. So it's not the end of coal in the absence of a climate policy. So where do you see the United States in 10, 15, 20 years in terms of its energy makeup? I think gas will continue to be playing a big role in the electric power system more than it's paid in the last 20 or 30 years. Even though there has been this incredible push for renewables and the prices have dropped precipitously over the past few years? Yes, because even though the prices have dropped, the renewables are not necessarily economically competitive against other sources, mainly of electric power. So the prices have dropped, and they are growing rapidly. But the problem is they start from such a very, very low scale. Wind and solar is only 2 to 3% of the total production of the country. And so if, even if you have a rapid rate of growth, which we do, it doesn't displace the rest of the system in that short a period of time. Even with those concerns, one of the benefits of the natural gas boom, says Professor Jacoby, is that it builds a bridge to the future. It gives American industry time, say 15 to 20 years, to develop renewable technologies before gas supplies run out. Not just wind and solar, but all renewables, such as biomass, hydropower, and geothermal. That idea is supported by a recent analysis by Citigroup. That study predicts that the cost of natural gas will rise as the supply diminishes. And in the meantime, renewables are expected to become cheaper. So electric utilities will actually need renewables to supplement demand in the future. That might reassure the renewable energy industry in the long term, but for now, it's a bit tough for them. Kurt Nickish reports. Evergreen Solar started out the picture of success with a big ribbon-cutting celebration with the Massachusetts governor. Company executives showed off their new manufacturing plant with 700 high-paying jobs. Inside, workers made solar cells and put them into panels like those you see on buildings. Basically, we connect all those cells together and we place them on top of a sheet of glass. 
Three years later, Evergreen Solar went bankrupt. It couldn't compete with China, a country that was doing for solar what it did for tennis shoes, drive down the cost. Panel prices had plummeted. Two weeks after that, another solar company went bankrupt too, Solyndra in California. Those highly publicized failures came at the same time fracking technology was fueling a boom in American natural gas production. I think this is a particularly dangerous point in time for American alternative energy entrepreneurs and for the future of our alternative energy industry here. Rob Day is a venture capitalist at a firm called Black Coral Capital. It's based in Boston to keep tabs on all the new energy technologies coming out of research universities such as the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Day says the money to fund these ideas is drying up thanks to fracking. Everybody sees the fracking boom here in the United States. And as I believe as well, the likelihood of a long-term period of relatively low natural gas prices leading to relatively low electricity prices. And yeah, it is absolutely driving investors out of the water. That's making it harder for many promising clean energy companies to get off the ground. And getting something off the ground is exactly what Keystone Tower Systems is working on. The company's chief technology officer, Eric Smith, shows off a metal pipe. It's a prototype of his company's new manufacturing process that makes it cheaper to build taller wind turbines. How high are these things? So today we build 80-meter towers in the U.S. Uh, we're going to 120 to 140. Taller wind farms reach stronger winds that produce exponentially more energy. So at the same time fracking technology is driving down the price of natural gas, companies like Keystone have been finding ways to make wind power cheaper too. Smith says the cost of wind in the United States has been falling at the same rate as natural gas prices. So last year, 2012, was the first year in which we installed more megawatts of wind turbines than we installed megawatts of natural gas plants. But fracking is getting all the attention. Smith says it's gotten very hard to find private investors. For now, Keystone is funding itself with federal grants. He's afraid those could dry up, too, if policymakers get tunnel vision. Yeah, I'm not worried about being able to continue to sell wind turbines in the U.S. I have much bigger fears about getting consistent federal support for wind energy than I am about cost pressure from natural gas. It's not just wind and solar, it's also power. nuclear power. Um, in addition to people, I have also an update on the conceptual design document. In a conference room at the Cambridge the Innovation Center, chapter. an incubator for tech companies, Leslie Dewan is meeting with her startup co-founders. That's what I've got. Dewan is a nuclear scientist at MIT. She and another doctoral student, Mark Massey, are refining a different way to make nuclear power, a new kind of smaller, cheaper, and safer reactor that can run on nuclear waste alone. They say with their technology, there's enough energy left in spent fuel rods to power the world for decades. Dewan and Massey presented their idea at a TEDx conference in Boston. So you're powering the world? for 72 years while simultaneously getting rid of almost all of its nuclear waste. So there's, there's a lot to like there, we think. In the audience that day was Russ Wilcox, a former CEO who'd already commercialized one big technology out of MIT. Wilcox teamed up with the two nuclear scientists. Their company is called Transatomic Power. He says the company's technology may be from the U.S., but its markets are not. The countries that are interested in nuclear and are growing quickly. You've got China, India, Indonesia, the Philippines, 
Transatomic's first customers might even be in the Middle East, where countries are consuming more and more energy to make salt water into drinking water. What Transatomic wants to do is pretty mind-boggling. They want to build nuclear plant prefab in America and ship them overseas. To do that, Transatomic Power will need a lot of private money and a lot of public support for its research. The company wants to build its pilot plant in America, but Wilcox says Transatomic may have to build it abroad if another country is more willing to help make the company's vision a reality. I'm not sure how the human race is going to get its energy needs without cooking the planet if we don't find some solution like this. So I feel that we ought to try very, very hard. Boston venture capitalist Rob Day says it's good that American companies are helping to develop clean energy around the world, but he wants them to have a strong domestic market too. Because the real risk is that a lot of those companies end up selling overseas. They end up building their customer bases overseas. They may even move overseas or sell themselves to an acquirer overseas. And there's a real risk here that we lose our leadership position, which we've built through our innovative capabilities but we lose our leadership position because we're not the best market. One company that's trying to keep a leadership position in solar is 1366 Technologies. CEO Frank Van Mierlo is giving a tour of the company's first factory. It's in the Boston suburbs. You know, our wafer comes out of the machine very uniform. That's one of the big selling arguments that we have is that uh, we eliminate a lot of the variability in manufacturing. But there's one room Van Mierlo won't show anybody. Right here is the, uh, the furnace room, where we have uh, currently three furnaces in operation. The door's window has been papered over. To make sure that nobody can look in. Inside is the company's key breakthrough, a technology that came out of MIT, a machine that makes silicon wafers for one-third less than the competition. That's key because wafers are the most expensive part of solar panels. It's a real-life example happening right here in Massachusetts of how technology is drastically reducing the cost. You know, we've made fantastic progress, and thanks to technology, we'll be able to continue that. Van Mierlo thinks by the end of the decade, solar will be cheaper than coal. But he says there also needs to be a good way to store energy when the sun's not shining, so Van Mierlo sees falling natural gas prices as an opportunity. I actually believe that we truly have a sunny future, uh, pun intended, and that gas is very helpful transition fuel. Van Mierlo says the fracking boom is giving the United States cheap energy for a while, a time window that America can use to invest in better energy storage and next-generation power. It's a sudden windfall, he says, that the U.S. cannot afford to squander. For America Abroad, I'm Kurt Nickish. What do you think the United States needs to do to sustain a plentiful and clean supply of energy? Send us a tweet at America underscore abroad and let us know your thoughts. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. We just heard about some of the energy innovations being made in Massachusetts. On the other side of the globe, China is the world leader in building wind farms and other forms of renewable energy. But still, renewables are just a tiny fraction of China's overall electricity supply. It has already surpassed the U.S. as the largest emitter of carbon dioxide. And that's because it uses so much coal. China's drive to make coal cleaner has implications for the U.S. and for global power companies. Jocelyn Ford reports. 
My phone for me. Until about ten years ago, these were the guys who kept Beijingers warm in winter and delivered fuel for cooking. Thousands of vendors peddled their three-wheeled carts down Beijing's narrow lanes. They sold round coal briquettes the size of coffee tins by the hundreds. But in recent years, business is down. Before, everyone used this. Now a lot of places ban coal. Too many people died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Besides, the leaky coal-burning stoves are inefficient, and the briquettes belched sooty, throat-burning pollution that turned clothes black. Despite the banner headlines this year about Beijing's pollution being off the charts, China's actually made progress in some areas by reducing the use of these stinky briquettes and hooking up more homes to city gas. China's burgeoning middle class stir-fries on gas burners. Even in the price-conscious slums, gas stoves and electric heaters are replacing coal. But China's total energy demand is still growing by leaps and bounds, and the country's not abandoning black gold anytime soon. Ming Sung is China representative for the U.S. Clean Air Task Force, a nonprofit that promotes low-carbon energy. Because China don't have luxury of gas like United States do, China don't have much oil either. So the only thing they got is coal, and lots of it. Seventy percent plus of their energy come from coal. We hope they will transition away from coal, but that transition is going to take decades, many decades to come. In the meantime, China is building coal plants at a ferocious pace, equivalent to several a month. The newer plants use cleaner technology, but they still belch massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and that's a concern to the Chinese government. Zhou Shizhou is an analyst with the global energy consultancy IHS Zira. The past five years in China, among the government agencies and officials, there has not been any disagreement on the fact that carbon dioxide is causing changes to the climate, and climate change is a serious threat. Now, the question is how we're going to deal with that. One way is by subsidizing and promoting development of new, cleaner coal technologies. There's a lot of research underway all across China. So this is our R&D center. This research lab, 45 minutes outside of Beijing, belongs to ENN, one of China's up-and-coming private energy companies. Catherine Chur gave me a guided tour. We started with a technology that turns carbon dioxide into something useful, if a bit odiferous. I can smell it. It smells like we're at the ocean almost. Yeah. <laughs> that seashore smell was from fast-growing algae swishing around in salt water. So what am I seeing here? There's green water sort of flushing through these pipes. A whole greenhouse full of long tubes, long glass tubes filled with green gut. Can you see those bubbles? They're CO2. So those algae can eat CO2. It turns out that after the algae eat the CO2, people can eat the algae. But that's not all. This is algae sludge. Algae right? sludge? Yeah, algae sludge. This can be used for cooking. And then, finally, we get biodiesel. Fascinating. Instead of burying carbon dioxide, which is costly and risky, the global warming gas is being turned into animal feed, or even fuel oil. The company says this technology will be ready to harvest in about three years. Though it's not a silver bullet that will eliminate all carbon dioxide, it could be one of the solutions. The next stop on our tour. 
was a test site for gasifying coal without ever removing it from the ground. This is the coal gasification facility at a, a pilot scale. Is there coal underneath us, underneath our feet? Yeah. We've got a few little domes, a lot of pipes going here and there. And they take coal and turn it into gas without ever removing it from the ground. So as long as you have the right kind of coal, there's no need for dirty, dangerous mines. No need to recover the land later. It's like oil drilling technology. That's ENN's R&D president, Zhu Chenqi. You drill holes horizontally, and you set up the gasification zone underground. And so the surface won't be destroyed. You can still grow your corns or soybeans there. The beauty of coal gasification is that instead of burning to release energy, the process depends heavily on chemical reactions. The result, syngas, which is mostly hydrogen and carbon monoxide. The process generates fewer pollutants than traditional burning, and the carbon dioxide can be captured and stored or in the case of ENN, fed to algae. Energy analyst Zhou Shizhou says coal gets a bad rap as being dirty because it isn't new, it isn't sexy, and it's black and dusty. It can really be as clean as you want to make it. It can be as clean as wind and solar. Of course, there's a catch. The more pollutants you want to get rid of, the higher the cost. Uh, so then there's a trade-off between how clean you want it to be and then when can you expect it to be actually competitive someone really needs to foot the bill, you need to demonstrate that the economics also makes sense. That's where China comes into play. It's willing to spend. Luca Mancuso came to Beijing to do a workshop for Chinese engineers scouring the globe for the best clean coal technologies. He's with the engineering company Foster Wheeler. So uh, what we are seeing overall in the world is that the number of projects in the world is decreasing because many projects have been cancelled. There are problems because of this financial crisis in the world. So global players are flocking to China to sell their technology, or in the case of America's biggest power generator, Duke Energy, to learn what China's doing and share best practices. In the past five years, the North Carolina-based company has forged more than two dozen partnerships with Chinese counterparts. David Moeller is vice president of Emerging Technology. They keep working on newer, cleaner technologies. So the hope is that they will actually be able to commercialize clean technologies sooner than we will in the U.S., and that we can learn from that for the benefit of our U.S. customers. In the U.S., he says, there's no incentive to invest in these technologies. In the U.S., with, you know, we have no carbon legislation. We have no price on CO2 today. So to make a sound economic argument that we should be investing in technologies that will reduce CO2, there's no economic basis to do that. There's no return on your investment today. But Moeller, whose partners include ENN, doesn't want to be left out of the clean coal game. He believes at some point the United States will require reductions in CO2 emissions. And when it does, his experience in China will help Duke Energy make smarter decisions on the best way to do it. That's why he's even imported some of ENN's algae to grow on top of his Kentucky power plants. For America Abroad, this is Jocelyn Ford. By the way, Duke Energy discovered that local homegrown algae did just as well or better than the imported stuff. And now let's go to India. The world's largest democracy doesn't consume much electricity per capita compared to other nations, but it's starting to catch up. 
by 2035, it'll need a lot more electricity, around 70 percent more per person, than what they use now. And like China, India is making big investments into renewables. But that won't be nearly enough to wean them off traditional and cheaper energy sources anytime soon. Bianca Vasquez-Tonez reports. Hundreds of millions without electricity clamoring to get it. But where do you get that extra power? India imports nuclear energy and is only starting to investigate its own natural gas resources. There's some hydropower, but droughts are hurting that industry. The cheapest and most reliable option is coal. Ashish Sethia manages India research for Bloomberg New Energy Finance. It is the biggest source of power generation in the country. It will still be the biggest source of power generation in the country even after 10 years, 15 years. But essentially, the thought is that you know, renewable energy can increasingly play a bigger role. Solar power will play the starring role. In nine years, India's leaders say they want to produce 10 times as much energy from the sun. As an example of this vision, the wealthy industrialized state of Gujarat unveiled a solar park considered the largest in Asia. When I announced the solar policy, I wanted to do it on a big scale. The state's governor, Narendra Modi, spoke about his ambitions for solar at a ceremony marking the event. I pray, Sun God, today Gujarat will show the way to the rest of the world in solar energy. It might not be the rest of the world, but two other states in India have plans to build even bigger solar parks than Gujarat. According to Will Pearson, a clean energy analyst from the Eurasia Group, the three large solar farms in India probably won't multiply. In India, you know, it seems like, yes, we're seeing a few projects going forward, but in most states in India, there's really very little future anytime soon for renewables or solar, especially just because they can't even pay for much lower cost coal. So he says India should look for creative ways to make individuals use solar power. The optimal future, I think, for solar, it's probably smaller installations, more distributed. You can see this in the city of Bangalore. But you have to climb onto the roof to see it. Look at this view. It's a hot water system. This is a 300 liter capacity water heater. My guide is Datananda Shetty from Orb Energy. It's one of dozens of companies selling solar powered water heaters in the city. I see thousands of homes extending to the horizon and blue solar panels glinting on top. For Shetty, this is normal. It's unlike every other roof, no? Yeah, water heater, now it's a mandatory. For any new construction, they have to go with the solar water heating systems. Yeah, these panels are mandatory in the city of Bangalore for new homes. The federal government subsidizes the solar water heater systems. The mornings are cold in Bangalore, so people like their showers hot. All of these things have made Bangalore the city with the most solar water heaters in India. The village of Torikompole has dirt roads and the houses are simple. A man walks by with a herd of sheep while another performs a Hindu blessing. We get to a one-room schoolhouse where all the children are standing outside waiting as their classmate hands out cookies. It's exam season, but they look happy enough. After all, they're getting cookies. But when I ask about the exams, the complaints come. They don't have enough light at night to study. Without power, it's very difficult to study. This village got hooked into the electricity grid a few years ago, but the power is anything but dependable. So a solar panel on the roof made a lot of sense. Mangalama Honapa is making South Indian coffee. 
She's wizened, but remarkably spry for her 80 years. She works in a bare-bones kitchen on a primitive gas stove. There's no refrigerator or other basic appliances. As she heats up the milk and heaps in the sugar, a space-age sconce glows behind her. It's powered by a small solar panel on the roof. Her husband, Manjunat Honopa, explains why he was willing to plunk down an $80 deposit for a solar panel. He says at night we only get power between 9 and 12 p.m. We were spending all of our money on candles and worried about them burning down the house. Now my wife can cook and my grandson can study without carrying around those candles. Their solar panel powers only four lights. If they work well over the next year, Mandrunat Honopa says he may buy another panel to run small appliances like a fan and radio. If more and more people without 24-7 grid power get their own solar panels, it could take pressure off the government to provide traditional electricity. But the gap between supply and demand is so great in India, the country will likely rely on coal for years to come. For America Abroad, this is Bianca Basquez-Tonis. Looking to learn more about critical issues affecting the world? Visit our website, americaabroad.org, and take a listen to some of our past broadcasts. Also, check out our exclusive multimedia content. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. Back here in the United States, we are weaning ourselves off coal, mostly because we're extracting more natural gas now. But we've had a long history of using clean energy, beginning with the big hydroelectric projects more than 80 years ago. This was the plan, to chain the river through a series of giant dams, checking the floods. To use the electric power generated by the dams to develop and rehabilitate industry in the cities. To electrify the farms through rural cooperatives. The dams of the Tennessee Valley Authority still operate today and generate electricity in several states. But it took an oil embargo, decades later in the early 1970s, to get the United States thinking seriously about exploiting its wind, sunshine, and other renewable sources of energy for the electric grid. Good evening. The Middle East War produced developments all over the world today. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon they will reduce oil production by 5% a month until the Israelis withdraw from occupied territories. If the Arab countries keep that pledge, it would reduce their production by almost 50% in one year. I think the Arab oil crisis of the 70s woke America up to energy issues in the way that little had before that. Nathaniel Green is the director of the Renewable Energy Policy Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council and certainly was the beginning of investments in alternatives to traditional energy, which at that point, oil was the most pressing on people's minds. The level of spending wasn't huge. It was, you know, big compared to nothing that came before it, but it was a big shift uh, in a sort of new area of development to take renewables out of the lab and start trying to really deploy them. While it was developing the space program, NASA was also looking into solar power. And during the Carter administration in the 1970s, new incentives were introduced to encourage the development of renewable sources of energy back here on Earth. 
Colin Meehan is the policy manager for the Environmental Defense Fund's U.S. Climate and Energy Program. There was a very important policy passed called the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act. PURPA is, is what we call it. And one of the important things that it did was it actually forced the existing monopoly electric utilities to buy power from anybody that could provide it at below cost. And this was really intended to allow people to create new renewable energy facilities because the monopoly utilities weren't typically interested in those kinds of investments. So translated, if I was a homeowner and interested in solar power, I could put a solar panel on my roof and generate electricity and then sell it back to the utility if I generated too much? More or less, that was the case as a result of the 1978 rule. Um, what I would say is in 1978, solar power wasn't really quite there yet uh, to the point that it is today. But there were things like cogeneration and even wind power back in the late 70s and early 80s that, that people did invest in. And, and as a result of this, utilities were required to buy it. Jeremy Carl of Stanford University's Hoover Institution reiterates that in the in the 1970s, in spite of President Carter's hopes for renewable energy, much of it just wasn't ready for prime time. He did some good things, I think, one of which was to increase energy R&D, but I think he also, in a sort of recurring pattern that we've seen uh, unfortunately too much with renewable energy, sort of implicitly held the promise that we were a lot closer to being able to address some of our energy problems with renewables than we really were. And I think inevitably that kind of led to disappointment down the line. This is a system with a lot of inertia in it. And um, to really overcome that inertia, you need something pretty revolutionary. But the memory of the Arab oil crisis soon faded. And as energy prices dropped in the 1980s during the Reagan administration, interest in renewable energy dwindled as did federal tax breaks and other incentives. Here's Colin Meehan again. And it was generally seen as a time where there wasn't much opportunity for renewable energy to develop. Because the White House wasn't interested in it, or what? When Reagan came into office, it became very clear that the White House wasn't really interested in the development of renewable energy. And, and it became less of a national focus, too, because by that point, in the early 80s even, the oil embargo was kind of ancient history already. While federal encouragement of renewable energy languished for many years, some states decided that they would experiment. Here's Nathaniel Green of the Natural Resources Defense Council. The most important state-level policy has been something called a renewable portfolio standard. A renewable portfolio standard tells the electric utilities that they have to provide a certain percentage of their electricity from renewables. It was adopted rapidly in about 10 states in the late 90s. And then that number has now grown to, I think, 29 states across the country. The introduction of federal environmental legislation, specifically amendments made in the early 1990s to the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts, also gave utility companies incentives to use renewable power by requiring power plants and other industries to have cleaner emissions. Before long, another but non-renewable technology would emerge that would profoundly affect energy policy as it is today. Fracking is a process to stimulate natural gas production from the tight shale formation below. Hydraulic fracturing, otherwise known as fracking, involves using pressurized and chemically treated water to extract otherwise hard-to-reach natural gas. Millions of gallons of water are pumped underground to loosen trapped natural gas and bring it above ground where it's captured. 
The process of extraction has attracted much criticism from environmentalists who say it's harmful to both public health and the environment. Amy Ellsworth was so scared she had her well water tested and found out the groundwater is contaminated with natural gas. The controversy over fracking as well as concerns about climate change in part led to a renewed and invigorated interest in all things green in political circles. The scientific consensus is that we are causing global warming. This is Mount Kilimanjaro, 30 years ago and last year. Within the decade, there will be no more snows of Kilimanjaro. Perhaps the most high-profile proponent of renewable energy to emerge recently was former Vice President Al Gore, whose documentary An Inconvenient Truth rallied the world to fight global warming. Some energy experts, such as Jeremy Carl of Stanford's Hoover Institution, say that Gore may have politicized the issue of climate change and, by extension, the renewable energy industry to the point where it harmed that industry's ability to connect with Republicans in certain states. The whole moralizing around that, this issue, has never set well with a large portion of the electorate, I think particularly but not exclusively on the right, and I think there's good reasons for that. Because ironically, Texas is the largest uh, generator of wind power, correct? Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things that has made Texas so able to be successful there is not just that they're very well sited, which they are. I mean, they're in a place with a high amount of wind resource, but that as opposed to a place like California, where the regulatory environment makes it very hard to do much of anything, in Texas, they were really able to move uh, quite quickly and, and surpass California as a kind of the leader in this area, all while being you know, run by a very conservative Republican governor and legislature. Though President Obama has promised to grow green jobs, he's occasionally thrown in caveats, as he did in this 60 Minutes interview last year. One of your big campaign themes was that green energy, the green economy, was going to be a tremendous generator of jobs, and that has not turned out to be the case yet. Let's take, as I said, the example of Iowa. And Iowa's not unique here. But we have tens of thousands of jobs that have been created as a consequence of the wind energy alone. Uh, is that enough? Absolutely not. Can we do more? Yes. I, I didn't make a claim that all those jobs were going to be created within a three-year window. This is still an industry that is at its infancy. After the passage of the 2009 American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, otherwise known as the Stimulus Bill, a solar energy company called Solyndra won a large government grant. But after it went out of business, there were questions about the awarding of that grant. And Solyndra's failure has proven to be a black mark on the Obama administration's record, says Jeremy Carl of Stanford's Hoover Institution. I think for a lot of people, Solyndra represented to them what is exactly uh, the antithesis of what government should be doing, which is picking winners and losers. And, and obviously, there are people who have different agendas around that as far as you know, advancing goals that they have. But I also think you know, there's a lot of real genuine sentiments around that, that that was kind of people who just didn't really understand the way markets work, kind of arbitrarily handing out taxpayer money to, to very large companies. When we think about renewable energy, how much support should the government give to expensive and somewhat risky new technologies, especially when the country is now in the midst of a natural gas boom? Phyllis Kutno, who studies clean energy at the Pew Charitable Trusts, argues that the government needs to preserve America's global competitive edge in clean energy technology. She says since 2004, private investment in it worldwide has risen more than 600 percent. Some of the fastest growth is coming from, certainly from Asia, but from emerging uh, economies all around the world. 
So if we're going to have a jump in energy consumption of 47%, 85% of that is coming from emerging democracies. So when we look at clean energy, we see not only clean energy as an opportunity to deploy here in the United States, but also to take all of those technologies that, frankly, the United States has largely innovated and to manufacture them and to export them to other markets. Because in a lot of markets around the world, distributed energy, renewable energy is already the cheapest and best option. So in places like China and India, that is seen as a very attractive option. That's right. I guess in this global marketplace, in the global village that we like to think that we live in, what's wrong with letting China and other emerging markets take the lead in developing new technology in this sphere? One could say that they would benefit more from it because they're kind of leaping over to adopting renewable energy as their primary source anyways. Well, I think a couple of things. One, again, we did invent most of these clean energy technologies, and we do have a stake in developing and manufacturing and exporting them. As I look out over the global sector, I can't imagine that the United States would want to give up on clean energy, that we wouldn't want to use our natural advantages to seize the economic and the national security and the environmental benefits that come along with clean energy. So it's a segment of our energy sector. It is a growth sector of the global economy. And why wouldn't we, when we have natural advantages, want to capitalize on that? Well, a lot of people say, well, that's what natural gas is doing right now. And it's providing a cheap, clean alternative to fossil fuels. We already have natural gas, and we already have the technology up and running for that. So why invest in these other forms of technology when we've got plenty of cheap natural gas? Well, you know, it's very interesting. We have made investments in natural gas. For instance, you know, hydraulic fracturing is something that U.S. government energy R&D dollars help to foster. So I I think when we look around, one of the phrases I hear often from people is, gee, we shouldn't be choosing winners and losers. We should create policy that provides certainty for all forms of energy. And we need diversity in our energy mix. And certainly I think there is broad agreement that there are several things that need to happen for it to be done as cleanly as possible, as safely as possible, which is We have to have assurance that clean air is protected, that there's clean water. Frankly, that's one of the things that's really missing here in the United States. We have some good state policies, but at the federal level, energy policy when it comes to clean energy has been very episodic, on again, off again. And that has an adverse impact on not only businesses, but also investors, inventors, you name it. John Hoffmeister is the founder and chief executive of Citizens for Affordable Energy. That's a nonprofit group that advocates for affordable and clean energy solutions for the United States. He's also the former president of Shell Oil Company. So you uh, rank these 10 sources of energy basically on their uh, affordability? Affordability and technological availability. Uh So for example, hydrogen as a future energy carrier is technologically not really available yet at a large scale. So that's still pretty far out there, but it will be a robust source of energy in the future. But in the meantime, the most affordable are clearly the traditional hydrocarbons as well as nuclear, as well as hydropower. So you're talking about natural gas and oil and coal. Oil, natural gas, and coal, yeah. This country, the United States, really has been endowed by nature 
with coal, oil, and natural gas in a way in which most parts of the world have not. It might come as a surprise that someone who supports the Keystone Oil Pipeline agrees with Pew's director of the Clean Energy Program, Phyllis Kutnow, that the United States should invest in researching and developing clean energy. He wants a policy that will support a full mix of sources, from oil to solar. What I propose is the creation of statutory authority by Congress signed by the president, which would create an independent regulatory body that manages the future of energy supplies, the future of energy infrastructure, the future of environmental protection, and the future of energy efficiency for the nation. Not for the Democrats, not for the Republicans, not for any particular special interest at all, but the interests of the American people. In other words, set the big rules on the energy infrastructure, the energy supply, energy efficiency, and the environment, and then let the industry go do what's necessary to produce the supply, let the construction industry do what's needed to build the infrastructure, make sure the environmental protections from federal levels are fixed and adhered to and inspected and regulated, and make sure we're taking best advantage of energy efficiency. That sounds like a really great idea, and it sounds like one that would really be opposed to by interests who like to make a lot of money from energy, who probably wouldn't want to see their market accessibility curtailed in any way by an independent governmental oversight board. You might ask the question, am I, am I just dreaming about this? And the reality is, I predict, before this decade is over, the American people will be experiencing increased frequency of blackouts where there's no electricity, increased frequency of gasoline lines where there's not enough transportation fuel, because the path we are on is going to result in less, not more, electricity production. The pain that the American people will be suffering will push the Congress to act regardless of the arguments of the special interests who want to protect the status quo. I think it will be driven, in effect, by crisis. I think the crisis is inevitable. And on transportation fuels, global demand is rising faster than global supply. So the inevitability of shortages is coming right at us. No matter what you think about the idea of government subsidies for either renewables or hydrocarbons, one thing is certain. Unless we upgrade the grid, the system that carries the electricity from the power plant to your home, there can be no progress. The grid is not able to handle all these new sources of energy, says Maggie Kurth Baker. She's science columnist with the New York Times Magazine and science editor at boingboing.net. And she wrote a book called Before the Lights Go Out, Conquering the Energy Crisis Before It Conquers Us. One of the things I try to explain to people is that when you're talking about infrastructure, short term is 40 years. Wow. And we haven't really done even the short term things. What makes this really hard and actually where I tend to get sort of pessimistic is not even just in the political realm, but in the coordination issue, because it isn't a simple drop in one solution, replace old solution problem solved. And it has to happen quickly, <laughs> which is really the hard part. So you're pessimistic for a national cohesive system. But, but what if everything just becomes more local? I think we're going to see a lot of localized renewable energy. Absolutely. And I think that's part of actually the national level change that we need is 
allowing more places to use the resources that they have access to and to get those onto the grid. The thing is, though, that what you want is for that local sources of energy to be part of this national network. Can you just describe how the grid has to operate differently to accommodate renewables like wind and solar versus the old standbys, coal, gas, oil? Yeah, absolutely. So to explain this, I kind of have to back up a minute and sort of explain how the grid works itself. Because one of the key aspects here is that the electric grid, in order to keep from getting a blackout, you have to have an almost perfect balance between electric supply and electric demand. And if that gets out of whack by even fractions of a percent, what you're going to get is blackouts. So around the United States and Canada, we have these centers where grid controllers work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, making sure that that balance is perfectly maintained. Now, they have connections with power plants. So they can call up a power plant and say, we need you to produce less electricity or we need you to produce more electricity. And they do that to kind of balance out with whatever demand happens to be at any given point throughout the day. What makes wind and solar a little bit tricky is that they aren't nearly as controllable as some of these traditional sources of power. You know, if you're talking about hydroelectric power, coal, natural gas, even nuclear to some extent, all of those things are things that the grid controllers can call up whenever they need to. Whereas wind and solar, if there's not enough wind or if there's not enough sunlight, you can't produce more electricity from wind and solar. So they're not as controllable as the sources of power that the grid kind of evolved to work alongside. And it's not really a deal breaker, but it does add another point of instability into this already unstable system. And the more instability you add in, the harder the grid controller's job becomes until you get to a point where you start having more blackouts than you would otherwise. So you're saying that without updating the grid, creating a smart grid, a more digitally enhanced grid, that we can't really develop renewable energies because the grid just can't handle it. We can develop renewable energies, but not as much as we want them to. We can't have them replace coal and natural gas or nuclear power at this point. We don't have a grid that could do that. So until we get our grid together, we're going to be stuck at what? Right now we're at 13% renewables. Right. Uh, the experts that I spoke with think you could get between 20 and 30% before you'd really kind of start to have problems. It's not a hard cutoff line. It's not like at this point, then everything will go down. It's more just it keeps getting harder and harder and harder the more you add in. And they think that somewhere between 20, 30% is where things would get hard enough that you wouldn't want to add anymore. And is anybody actually saying, let's do this, let's address this grid problem and putting money towards that? In some ways, yes, people are. There's not a clear, unified movement to get this fixed right now. And that's really part of the problem because it's not something that, you know, one organization can do because our grid is owned by lots and lots of different organizations and companies. And if you actually want to fix the thing, you kind of have to get everybody on board. This hour, Global Energy and Innovations was produced by Jocelyn Ford, Kurt Nickish, Bianca Vasquez-Tonez, and A.C. Valdez, and edited by Martha Little, with additional production help from Flan Williams. You can hear this and past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the TuneIn or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website, americaabroad.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. 
Support for this show was provided by public radio international stations and listeners like you. Support was also provided by the Qatar Foundation International and the Stewart Family Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.